Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. Welcome, everybody, to the Kick Push Pivot podcast. My name is Alex Gallup, here with my co-host, as always, Mr. Pete Mackey. Say what's up to people, Pete. Hello, everybody. We are glad to be back from our summer break. We took a little bit of time off to enjoy California's finest season, and now we're back. And the guest we bring today is Steve Tesler. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'd say this is start of season two. We had a solid what was it, eight or nine episodes that we did at the beginning. So that was season one. And then Steve is going to come and start off season two for us very strong. Well, congratulations on season one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So you on Netflix soon? Well, that is, you know. original story. Yeah. yeah. Our documentary will come out soon. How, how a Portuguese and an Irishman created a podcast out of nothing. That doesn't sound very attractive to people, but maybe, maybe there's an audience for that well, out there. Don't, don't sell know. yourself short. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, um, Steve, um, I know we've known each other for some time, but what we wanted to do before we dive into the history between California Bank of Commerce and how you fit into um, our podcast for the listeners today is kind of dive into your background a little bit. You're a very interesting person with a lot of great and interesting hobbies. In fact, I would say you probably have a better setup for podcasts than we do because of your passion for uh, for radio yeah. and all things electronic. But why don't you share with us kind of your background? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? How'd you get into the place you are today? Well, I'd be glad to do that and hopefully do it in a condensed, condensed version that you you and your your audience and your listeners find interesting. So I'm I'm a native San, native Bay Area. I'm uh, native from the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco and raised primarily in San Francisco, though I had a bit of a hiatus and moved down to the peninsula in the Menlo Park area for about six years. And uh, that's when I actually, uh, you mentioned my, my interest in radio, and that's how I kind of got interested in radio because I, growing up, I had a friend in, in elementary school who, who I would spend time at his house, and it, there was always interesting things going on in his house. And I, I realized his, his father worked for NASA. Uh, because we were in Menlo Park, you know, NASA was in the South Bay in Palo Alto, I think, or Mountain View. So he worked at NASA. And so he, he always had all this interesting equipment in his house, you know, and then he had an antenna outside. I thought, oh, this is very interesting. So that was my first kind of exposure to, if you will, amateur radio. And so after living in the peninsula, I came back to the city and uh, finished school there and, and then uh, went to um, San Jose State. And Golden Gate University, and what's that? Spartans. Spartans. That's right. <laughs> and then, you know, I studied business in school, and I had an opportunity to. Um, I think it was my junior year in college. Um, I was meeting with. Um, well, I, I skipped over one thing. Let me go back just a little bit. In that, I didn't go to college immediately after high school. Um, I uh, was a passionate racquetball player. And so I had this I had this grand vision that I wanted to be a professional racquetball player. And so I spent a lot of time 
playing racquetball. <laughs> wow. Is, and, there a, is there a professional league for that? Or how does one become there, a professional There actually, I don't think there's much of one today, but there was back in the um, 80s and, okay. and 90s. And mm-hmm. I actually, uh, my, my father is from St. Louis, Missouri. And oh, St. Louis was actually a mecca for racquetball players. The, no kidding. The best, the number one racquetball player in the world and some, some beneath him were all from the St. Louis area. No kidding. Yeah. So I would spend wow. summers, I would spend summers in St. Louis. And uh, a lot of these guys would be hanging out at the Jewish community center in a suburb of St. Louis and, and which was a phenomenal kind of sports facility. And there would be these guys in their, you know, teens playing racquetball and they played, you know, phenomenal racquetball. And I'm watching these guys play and I play with them occasionally, but could never play to their caliber. I mean, the, the number one player in the world at the time is, who eventually became the number one player in the world, I should say, is a guy by the name of Marty Hogan. And Marty was a St. Louis resident, and uh, he uh, he was a phenomenal player, absolutely phenomenal. And he, I mean, he would have to be to become the number one player. And he held that ranking for you know several years. So anyway, I came back to you know would come back to Bay Area after being in St. Louis for a summer, and really kind of got the the racquetball bug, and decided I wanted to to try playing racquetball. So I did it for a few years. I played. Um, a bunch of local tournaments. I made it to like open level player. And then I played in the nationals one year in, in Tempe, Arizona. And, uh, I, I actually dropped down a, I dropped down a class into the B class. Cause I figured this is a national tournament and I playing local and I'm playing open and A's, but I figured it's, it's competition against stiff because it's going to get uh, stiffer. Sure enough, it was, I, I ended up, uh, losing in the second round and just got totally smoked. <laughs> <laughs> so you realized your dream of being a professional racquetballer was probably not quite That's when I realized I probably should pursue another profession in life. Yeah. I realized I should be a banker. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is your, your dream of becoming a racquetball player was smashed. So oh, it was, was it was yeah. yes. It was squashed. It was squashed. Oh, even better. Okay. That's a different game, but we can talk about squash too because I played as well. <laughs> but uh, let's put it this way: my dreams got put on hold. Um, but it was a great experience, and uh, it's it's something. And you know, I know later we're going to talk about um, you know, f- life and things that you know some some things I've learned in life. And one of the things is that I've learned that you've got to pursue your passion. And even if it means taking, you know, veering off course and doing something that may not, may not take, lead you to ultimately where you will, where you will end up in life, it's a life experience. And I, and I learned a lot from playing racquetball. I mean, I learned about competition. I learned about being, you know, in front of a lot of people (laughs) watching you play, you know, and there's, there's, you know, sometimes those things can be intimidating. And so it's, it helps. These are all life experiences. And I'm very passionate about Every individual should pursue their passion because it's if it's about being it's being passionate about something that makes you good at something. Sure. So you know there's all there's all relative levels of if you will goodness, and I realized that as passionate as I was about it, there was still some limitations into how to what my level of play was, but it was still a great experience. Uh-huh. Well, hey, I was a pro major and a football player, and now I'm in sales for healthcare. So there you go. That's anything. Just just try stuff, you know. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. So, I, I moved overseas to England for my first three years after college and, and worked for a British nonprofit out there. So that was a life experience as well. So I, I 100% agree with that. But tell us how you landed at the California Bank of Commerce uh, in your current role. So I started my career in public accounting. 
And it was, it was a member of the racquetball club where I was playing regularly who I was, I was back in school and I was talking about, um, my, my career. And he said, you know, you should consider, I was interested in public accounting. He said, you should consider doing a tax internship at a local, at a regional public accounting firm. And he was kind enough to, he worked for a company called Touche Ross, which at the time was one of the big eight accounting firms in the United States. That's so, so certainly gone. Um, it's merged with, I can't remember who it merged with now, but anyway, he introduced me to accounting. I actually ended up getting a job in public accounting as a result of that and worked in public accounting for a number of years for a regional firm and then for a national firm. And then, um, it, public accounting is, I, I learned a lot in accounting, uh, in that I had an opportunity to work with a number of medium or middle market companies. And one of the professional groups that I would often interface with was the was bankers because for a lot of the clients that we had the brand the their bank was their primary source of capital mm -hmm. and one of the reasons one of the things that was important to the banker was that they receive a copy of the company's financial statements that were issued by the cpa firm right. so there was a, there was a lot of interaction between the cpa firm and the bankers and so i uh, over time i realized that uh, well i loved i love public accounting um, I was even more interested in banking. And so at some point I decided to make a career change. And because of the connections I had made through my public accounting experience with people in the banking community, I reached out to them, you know, some of them specifically and said, here's what I'm thinking about. What would be the chances of a person like me having, you know, eight to nine years of public accounting experience migrating into the world of commercial banking? Okay. And so I, I um, convinced someone at... Um, Wells Fargo Bank to take a leap of faith with me. And uh, I, I started my career at Wells um, and had to start in a position that was not ultimately the position I wanted to be in, but nonetheless, it was a way to get my foot in the door. What was it that attracted you to banking from accounting? First of all, I hated having to account for my hours every day. Oh, man. Yeah. Because it, you know, public accounting is built yeah. on an, it's an hourly, it's a, it's a fee for service arrangement, right? Sure. So I just didn't like the having to account for my hours. Um, right. So that was one of the things that was driving me, if you will, away from accounting. There were a lot of things I loved about it, but that was one thing I just didn't like. And also, I was very interested in money and finance. It was just something that was always very you know appealing to me and and understanding how it is that uh, a company um, how they're. I felt in accounting you didn't do as much. You did some analysis, but I, I felt banking was some analysis, but also stepping back and taking kind of looking at the bigger picture about a company and kind of understanding where it's been, where it is and where it's going and how a, a bunch of additional factors um, are taken into consideration when you're evaluating a company like their, their presence in the market, their, you know, their market share, the other dynamic forces that may affect their could affect their business of a whole, whole variety of factors that, you know, in accounting, you don't necessarily, you think about those things, but you don't necessarily take them into consideration. So you're essentially, so, you're a business lover and you realize that banking is pretty much the lifeblood of any business and kind of I mean, encompasses everything that the business needs to run. And so you figured, well, I'm going to get into banking so that I can essentially, you know, take a look at these businesses and help them out and continue their, their, their journeys for them. I think that's a fair statement. And, you know, there's a lot of, it, there's a very integral relationship among all professionals that serve businesses, but 
banking is certainly one of those because capital is um, the major fuel for a number of businesses. That's that's the fuel that keeps the, the engine going. And so banking isn't all about um, providing capital, but that's certainly one major aspect of banking. And so the opportunity to to move into banking was attractive to me. And and as, as I said, I, I started my career at Wells and and was there for approximately uh, five, six years. And then while I loved being, uh, I loved the opportunity at Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo is also a large organization and I'm a very entrepreneurial individual. And I felt like I needed Love to do that. something that was a bit more entrepreneurial than mm-hmm. I might be able to achieve at Wells Fargo. And I had an opportunity to join a, a regional business bank that was headquartered in Oakland called Civic Bank of Commerce. And Civic Bank uh, was a turnaround. So it was, it was a bit of a risk in that, in that, from that perspective, but there were two seasoned Wells Fargo executives who, were, who had come into Civic Bank to help fix it because it was a fix-it story. Okay. And um, I just happened to stop in one day and say hello to the two gentlemen that were there and say, what's, what's going on here? What are you two doing here? This is, the size of this bank is like a rounding error when you guys were at Wells. So <laughs> what is it that you find attractive about this? So one thing led to another, led to a, a, you know additional discussion. And at the end of the day, there was an opportunity for me to join Civic Bank of Commerce as, okay. the, the, as the, someone in their sales, to lead their sales group, if you will, or sit their sales initiative at the bank. Because it was time to grow the bank. The bank had gone through a fix-it period and it was coming out of the fix-it period. So now it was going to have to, it was going to have to migrate or morph into the growth period. And so that's part of my value. And that's who you're with currently then, right? Nope. Civic Bank was sold in February and March of 2002 to uh, a bank uh, in out of Los Angeles called City National Bank, who you may have heard of. Familiar. Um, And so had an opportunity to stay with City National for a couple of years and then had an opportunity after the, after being with City National for a couple of years, subsequent to the sale um, by of Civic Bank, to join a startup bank in Danville called Diablo Valley Bank, uh-huh. which was a smaller bank than Civic, but uh, ended up being a a grow it and sell it strategy for the bank. And so I was there until I joined California Bank of Commerce, similar to Civic Bank of Commerce. Right. And there's some parallels between California Bank of Commerce and Civic Bank of Commerce because there are quite a few people who are part of California Bank of Commerce that also were at Civic Bank of Commerce. Ah, yes. So Did there's you it's, start California Bank of Commerce or So I was one of I was one of nine so the bank opened for business in July of 2007 mm-hmm. and uh I would, the bank that I was with prior was sold on June 30, 2007, and I stayed through the sale and then was there about f- six weeks after the sale and then left and joined California Bank of Commerce in August. So I joined a month after the bank opened. So in, like essence, you know, here, yeah. in essence, I've been here from the beginning, yeah. which, was four, which will be 14 years this July. No kidding. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. Very Thank good. You. So um, <clears throat> one of the things we often talk about on this podcast is kickstarting a new concept or an innovation, being part of the bank from day one, more or less, what did you see was critical to the success of the bank to get you where you are now, 14 years later in those initial early days? Well, certainly, you know, when you, whenever you start a business, especially one that's predicated on attracting clients and a lot of the clients that we were seeking to attract were former clients. Mm -hmm. So, and there, obviously there were some clients that were, you know, were new to us, but in the beginning, 
especially with a bank, you're trying to convince your former clients to become part of your new bank. And that is asking your former clients to take a leap of faith because you're asking them to join a new organization that just launched oh, yeah. that um, is, is a startup company. And is there no non-compete clauses there where you can't like, like you sold that business and whoever you sold it to didn't say you can't go after your old clients. You, you were able to actually go after all of them. Well, we were, we, we certainly, a number of the clients knew that we had left where we were. And so they, a lot of them, a number of them reached out to us and, you know, inquired, but we, we certainly let them know that we were here, um, that we had started the bank and, um, you know, would kind of take it from there. Got it. I didn't so, know if there were any kind of legal issues there with going after. Um, I mean, there, there, the thing you there can be, I mean, you want to be careful. You don't, you don't want to take information from your prior organization. That's the proprietary information to them, but you know, you've been in this community long enough. People know you and they know when you move right. and, and yeah. you know, so their connections are made. So the question is, can you over time, you know, convince the, your, some of your former clients to become part of your bank. And so it's about very relationships, very much about relationships. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like some of the early success of your bank was actually just all predicated on, you know, who you guys are and your, essentially your reputation within that. Industry. A lot of it is built on reputation and trust and, you know, people have to trust you and, and they're buying you as much as they are buying the organization. They're buying you more than they are the organization at that point right. in time. I mean, you have to have the organization, the infrastructure behind you, and you have to be able, you have to provide the services they need. But when it gets when you, when you get down to the nitty gritty, they're they're placing a lot of trust in you, mm-hmm. and the fact that you're there and that you will be there for a period of time. Because the last thing that anyone would want to do whenever they're changing service providers is they will they want to know that you're going to you're going to there's some continuity, yeah. and that. You're not going to, I'm going to move. And then, oh, by the way, I'm, you're, you're no longer with the organization. That's not what they had anticipated or planned. Right. And there was probably a reason you started this new bank too. Was that basically to provide better service for those customers? Or what exactly was the reason why you said, I'm going to start my own bank? Or I'm well, the reason is because we felt, and as we still, as we feel today, that middle market companies are, are underserved. And while there are certainly are, there certainly isn't a shortage of banks necessarily, but where we feel that there's a, where where we feel there's an opportunity is to provide the service that the relationship, I should say, that you would expect from a local business, have access to local decision makers, to senior management, to senior people in the organization, but if you're with a national bank, you like the products that are found at a national bank. Right. So if our, our, our whole thesis was that if you could create a bank that provided that depth of relationship that businesses were looking for, coupled with the services that you would find at a national bank or the products you would find at a national bank, that you could create a powerful banking organization for businesses. And that's what, at the outset, that's what we, that's the vision we had for the bank. We knew it was going to take some time to get there because it, w- it wasn't going to happen overnight, right? Because we weren't going to have every product. We weren't, ha- we weren't going to have the product set that we wanted the day we opened the bank. We knew we would have the, the, a baseline set of products, 
But we also knew that that product set was going to have to evolve over time and become enhanced. And yeah. we also know that some of our clients, some of our former clients, were going to be too big for us because we didn't have the we didn't have the lend, legal lending limit to support some of them. That so makes the, sense. Our, so our balance sheet was going to have to grow over time too to be able to support them. And that's what's that happened sense. over the past fourteen years. Yeah, and I think uh, you know one of the things that always happens in the creation of something new like you guys are doing at California Bank of Commerce in the early days, like you said before, it's about relationships and trust. So at some point you have to push through some doubt or some uncertainty, right? Where you're like, okay, I think this concept, this vision that you laid out makes sense. Having the depth and the relationships that matter within the bank while having some of the products a national bank has, but it's kind of a gamble, right? Can you talk to us a little bit about any moments in time where you were kind of looking forwards and looking backwards, kind of checking your blind spots and making, maybe feeling like maybe, maybe things won't work out or maybe they will. I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, I'm sure there's a couple of moments like that, that came up in your experience. Yeah. You know, I, I never had any doubts as to whether or not it would work out. I think the doubt was more centered around, are we going to get to a place fast enough for some of our, some of the businesses that we'd like to bring to the bank as clients to be able to serve them in the way that they, they, they need to be served. Not so much as it relates to the relationship piece, but more as it relates to the capabilities of, in, with, with respect to the amount of, of, of credit that they need as well as the different products they need. And were we gonna be able to scale fast enough to be able to, to get there for them? For sure. Yeah, what, it, what exactly was it uh, that allowed you to get there? What were the pieces that you needed to put in place? Well, certainly, you know, as 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 a bank grows and evolves, um, capital is a is a driver for the amount of credit that can be extended to any single company. So there's a, there's a, there's a, some formulas that are applied to banks, and those formulas are, are based predicated largely on on the capital of the bank. So the larger the capital. The greater the amount of capital, the greater the amount of um, capacity. So we, and also as your as the bank grows or any bank grows, you have to be able to maintain certain capital ratios. And so as the the, the growth will drive the need to raise more capital, because at some point you're going your 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 ratios are going to change enough that you need to raise more capital. So as you're going along this path, you have to systematically determine when you need to raise more capital so that you can keep your you keep your ratios in line but also so that you can you, and that will by in itself drive the amount of credit capacity that you're able to extend any one any one client so so being able to raise more capital and one way to raise capital is just through earnings if you're if the bank is generating earnings that that increases capital so you can you can increase capital through earnings but sometimes you're growing at such a fast pace that the earnings will not keep pace with the rate at which you're growing. So you have to you have to you have to make up the difference by raising capital, and that's what we've been able to do over the over these 14 years. Is at points in time we've been able to raise more capital to be able to, to, to VC firms and stuff like that. People to invest in you guys. Primarily, they're primarily institutional investors, as well as it's it's been a combination of institutional investors and retail investors. Mm-hmm. Who um, have made investment in in the banks and subsequent um, stock offerings? Okay. So, uh, not 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 private equity in this sense, 
they're they're more funds, if you will, mm -hmm. as opposed to private equity firms. Yeah. So as you go into this process of like trying to balance growth with cash and having all the assets you need to kind of bring on larger clients, which then result right. in larger revenues, that kind of right. balancing seesaw act. Uh, when did you guys make that pivot from a local bank 14 years ago, two Wells Fargo guys, um, yourself into more of a regional player? Because I know that you've gone through recently, uh, you've had the opportunity to kind of put on your branding hat and kind of rebrand the bank and, and kind of provide a new flavor to how you service and how you communicate to clients. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it had always been our vision to be this regional bank. Uh, the question is how quickly could we, could we create the depth and breadth to be able to do that? And then about three or four years ago, we decided that it was important that we go through a branding exercise for the bank to because we hadn't really, we hadn't refreshed the brand in any way or really done much with our website. And we knew sure. that it was time to sort of re-image the bank. And um, that, in, that involved um, a, a variety of different things, everything from changing the, the logo to a new tagline, to a complete re, um, remake of the website, to stationary, to... Um, wow advertising to marketing um, it, it it meant elevating our game I mean we, we had we were playing a good game and I don't and, and I and I don't mean to play that we weren't we were playing a good game but we needed to now take the the level of our play to the next level to, 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 to higher level racquetball to a level racquetball. We're, we're going from <laughs> a to professional <laughs> Which means you need to buy some sweatbands and you need a new set of kit. So right. we, we, we went from we went from uh, you know triple A, you know Sacramento to you know the major leagues, and we figured to make that to make that jump, we, we've got a we've got to look like a much and feel like we're a larger bank, but we're not. We're still that relationship bank that you can rely on, but we're also much broader than that. And we're, we have much, we have more capabilities. And so it was, it was kind of br trying to bring all those things together in, in this, in this rebranding exercise. And so we've are now we've chosen the tagline, the premier business bank. And that's really to, to be emblematic of how we think of ourselves in relation to our clients. We want to be premier for our clients. We want our clients to have a premier experience, but it's all about business banking mm -hmm. and nothing else. I also so we, like uh, part of your rebranding. I've noticed on some of your materials as well as your website, one of the lines I like, which I think is really refreshing, is the, the phrase, we bank on business. Right, which I really like that because it's kind of has a dual meaning, right? The idea that obviously you are bank and financial business, but you're also partnering with the businesses themselves in kind of a unique kind of a way. So I like the that to me still has like the local bank feel, but it has a sophisticated branding palette um, with the with the look and feel you're providing as well as some of the products you have. So it's kind of an, I, I like that part of it too. It's kind of creative and a little whimsical, but also which is more approachable, but it's also you know professional. I mean, our, our prior tagline was defined by the company we keep, which we all liked. I mean, it really, we were defined, we have been, and we continue to be defined by the company we keep. And our clients define us. And the question is, the, the question for us is who are those clients going to be? Mm -hmm. 
And that's ultimately at the end of the day, we're, we're all defined by our clients if you're in a professional services business, which is what we are, which is what we're in. We're in a service business. That's right. Um, and so we, we are defined by our clients. But we also know that um, it's important that our clients not only understand that they define us, but that we want them to see us as a premier player, as a premier source for their business. And as you mentioned, Pete, it's, it's about being more than just a bank for them. It's about recognizing when they have, when there are challenges and when we can't meet those challenges, who else can, if they don't have resources to be able to meet those challenges. And that's what relation, that's what relationships are about. And relationships are not about, not as much about being available and, and accessible for our clients when things are going well but being available and accessible to them when things are challenging yeah. and helping them through difficult times. And the past 14 months have been difficult times for some businesses, especially. So yeah, that's knowing, when relationships you know, are made. Yeah, exactly. And knowing if you're not the right person for them to, to help them, that. you know exactly who it is that, that it is. that. Can we hope them. so. We and hope that, that's that probably builds the trust as well moving forward. Yeah, because in the day, a relationship is about not only trust, but about the best interest of the other person. If you're a California Bank of Commerce, right? Like maybe you have 75, 80% of the products they need, but something crazy hits, or they need a larger loan that is not currently in your bailiwick, or something that's a specialized product. And a relationship driven approach to customer service is hey, Let's problem solve this together and find the right solution, whether it be with a partner or an outside vendor or whatever, versus I'm sorry to hear that we can't help you, or maybe we can kind of help you, but not totally solve your problem. So we're just going to focus on what we can do as an organization because it benefits us rather than looking at a right. bigger picture. So right. I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. Um, and I like this tagline. We were we are defined by the company we keep, but relationships are also all about being available and accessible and helpful. Um, I think those, those are some of the nuggets that I'm taking away from this part of the conversation. Cause I think that's actually a valuable lesson across all business, not just for people in the public finance or banking space. It's a good life lesson to take home. It, it, it absolutely is. It's, it's critically important. And, you know, I, I will say that I think the word relationship, unfortunately has gotten overused mm. and beaten up a bit. And I, I think it's lost some of its meaning. Um, it's still, I think it's still important, but I just think it's been overused. To, it's been used to the point where it's overused. And so sure. it, maybe it may, for some, for some people, it may seem a little ho hollow or empty. And I, we, we, we try to change that and really put the, the emphasis back in relationship. But I, th it, I think relationship is, is a lot about collaboration oh, and yeah. it's not collaborating with people. And so we like to use the word collaboration as much as we do relationship, because at the end of the, at the end of the day, we're all in this together. And if we can find a way to help make a situation better, that's why that's when we're collaborating. And it, it's it has to be, but it has to be a two way street. It's just not all one way, you know, either from either party, right? I agree. I, I I'm I'm loving that take home nugget. <laughs> relationship is about collaboration. 
if you want, if you want me to help you with your next rebrand as a California Bank of Collaboration, I'm ha- I'm happy to do that. That's a that's a free free tidbit for you there. there you go. California <laughs> Bank of Collaboration. I like that. <laughs> so for our audience, uh, Steve, as you wrap up here, uh, based on your life experience and your time at California Bank of Commerce, are there any nuggets you could toss out to a budding entrepreneur in the healthcare, technology, or nonprofit space? Sure. Um, I would say that, and we spoke about this a little earlier, is that you know if you've got a passion for something, follow it. That's okay. you, whatever you do in life. If it's it has a certain element of passion to it, and you and you, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're not going to do it well. And that doesn't mean everything that you're passionate about is going to be successful, because <laughs> it's it's probably <laughs> not. Right. But that's okay. That's okay because without passion, um, you won't you won't fulfill and, and you won't do things to the, to their fullest. So that's the, that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing is, is, you know, there are going to be times when you, you might think, well, why am I doing this? And does this make sense? Is this going to be successful? And you're going to have doubts as you, as you mentioned earlier, but if you believe in what you're doing and if you, um, if you stick to it and if you, if you have a vision, then you can make it happen. And I think uh, those are the things I've learned about life: is that uh, you have to be passionate about things, and you have to. And if you have a vision, you've got to tr- you've got to see it through. And again, there are going to be bumps along the road, and there are going to be you're going to there'll be times when you're second guessing yourself, but that's okay because that's normal. That's that's human nature, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't necessarily be discouraging. But the other thing I would say is that. Surround yourself with a good group of advisors. Hmm. Um, and Important. sometimes um, we think we can do many things. We can, we can go it alone here and go it alone there. And, and it, we need to conserve resources by doing that. And I, I, I totally get that. I totally understand that resources are finite. And I'm talking about as much about financial resources and human resources. But it's so important to have a really top-notch group of advisors because that will make or break a lot of companies. And if you have the right team, and I call it a team because it really is a team, you need to have a competent financial professional. You need to have a competent, you need to have competent legal advisors or legal counsel. You need to have competent banker and you need to have someone maybe that's a financial planner Uh and you need to have someone like yourselves who can provide um, input on hiring and HR and, and staffing and that the whole nine yards around that, because we all know that people are what are so the, the essence of so many companies. So if, if you create this sphere of advisors, that will make your business life not only happier, but probably more successful. And so, sometimes it's a matter of, um, you know, you, you need to spend some money, you got to got to spend money to make money, and uh, sometimes it's a matter of spending some money to be able to uh, to get the right team on to get the right players on your team. Yeah, that's uh, that's a phrase I hear often from my wife when she goes to Costco. The, the more the more you spend, the more you save. <laughs> but uh, no, you've been uh, all kidding aside, Steve. This has been a great uh, session today to kick back off our break from the summer. Thank you again for your time. If people want to know more about the California Bank of Commerce or connect you, 
Yes. Uh, what's, what's the best way of getting, reaching out to you? Certainly, they can visit our website at www.californiabankofcommerce.com. Contact me directly, uh, Steve Tesler at S Tesler, T E S S L E R, at bank, B A N K C B C dot com via email uh, or phone. I don't know if should I leave my phone number too. Go for it. 510-499-9509. So there you got three ways you can find me on the website. You can, you can find, you can send me an email or call me, but whatever works, if I could be more than happy to help in any way, shape, form, or can. Steve Tesler, California Bank of Collaboration. Thanks for being on. And everybody listening out there, uh, make sure to go and like and follow us on all of our social medias. Thank you so much, Steve, for being on the show today. And Pete, Alex, thank you both for having me. It's been a pleasure Absolutely. talking with you both. And we will see you all next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.